Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. Well, this episode of All Things is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the new book, Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in Your Church by Jamie Dunlop. So let's be honest, it's not always easy to love the people that you go to church with. Churches are full of differences. Those differences might be rooted in culture or personality or musical style. In recent years, differences over political and social issues have frayed the unity of many churches. How can Christians navigate those relationships in a God-honoring way? Can they really love people at church who sometimes drive them crazy? This practical guide explores eight truths from Romans 12 through 15 that show us how to find God-exalting unity at church with those we struggle to love. Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy is a roadmap to finding joy in Christ through the many differences we have with fellow believers, a joy that powerfully declares the glory of God, because easy love rarely shows off gospel power. Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy will release at the end of November, but you can pre-order it now and receive 30% off when you sign up for a free Crossway Plus account at crossway.org forward slash plus. Okay, so on this episode of All Things, we're chatting about unity, specifically in the church. If you're a Christian in the West, then your church is likely enduring a season of disagreement or disunity or strife, maybe arguing, maybe even the departure of some of those people who have different views, or maybe loud demands of people who stayed behind with opposing views. I don't think I know a pastor or a person in ministry right now whose church is not currently trying to figure out what unity looks like in the midst of a pretty divided culture. So I'm actually going to be talking with the author and pastor who wrote the book that I just mentioned in that Crossway ad, The Love, The Ones Who Drive You Crazy. I love the title. Um, And I'll just say now that I read the entire book and found it totally convicting and encouraging. So as is often the case with all things episodes, I am speaking to myself. I'm doing these interviews for my own benefit. There's so much that I learn and glean from with every episode. So I hope it encourages you as well. Um, I think this is a topic, church unity, that many of us just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, unity, it's basic. I got it. It's elementary. You know, I like the people in my church. We're fine. But as I read the book and really examined my own heart, you know, I began to wonder, am I genuinely, intimately unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is it more of a like, yeah, we're, you know, surface friends, or maybe I even just tolerate them or act like maybe just an absence of conflict is somehow unity. Um, But as I read, I felt like, you know what, unity really is so much deeper. Um, I think anecdotally right now, we all may feel some disunity. Now, don't get me wrong. I deeply love my church so much. I have so much affection for my local church, and I really love the global church too. Um, There's so much that we can celebrate when it comes to our churches, but I think we shouldn't let that keep us from pressing toward one another in unity. Let's not be satisfied with a surfacey unity. Let's long for true unity. Okay, so I wanted to look at the data. You guys know I love the data. And this is from Barna Research um, regarding church unity. I thought it was so interesting. Okay, listen to this stat. Nearly half of pastors and Christians, so 47% of all pastors and Christians, view unity as agreement. So they associate the idea of unity with agreement. So no differences, we're unified, we agree on everything. 
Christians say they associate unity with words like alliance. 39% said unity means alliance. 31% said unity means sameness. So another interesting fact, um, another interesting statistic rather, is that Christians find more unity, that is unity that's associated with words like agreement or sameness, with their friends than with their church. So 48% say they experience this feeling of unity in their friendships, but thirty only 35%, so just over a third, say they feel that unity in their churches. So there's massive implications for those findings. Most obviously, these statistics imply that deep down, we think we can only be united with those with whom we agree. So God help us all if that's the case, because how often do we need to be united with someone that we don't agree with? And how sad to say that we feel greater unity outside of the body of Christ. You know, I say a lot, whether it's in my own church or different speaking engagements, or I write it, but our family in Christ is primary and eternal. We are meant to be the most closely unified, the most deeply tied to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what the data shows is that that's not necessarily true for many of us. So we're living through a a cultural trend, I think, that says unity equals sameness. And if you're not the same as me in every way, then I'm not sure we can have meaningful unity. Big implications for the church here. So I'm excited for you to listen into this conversation with pastor and author Jamie Dunlop. You're going to hear that he has put a ton of thought into this because he pastors in what I would say arguably is America's most divided city. So he's really had to put to test what he um, shares with us in this conversation. I hope that it encourages you and helps you to navigate what feels like some pretty divided times. Let's listen in. Welcome to All Things Everybody. It's great to have you back on this episode. I am joined by author and pastor Jamie Dunlop. He's coming to us from Washington, D.C., He has written a really useful book. We're going to be talking about a trend that I know everybody is impacted by. So first of all, Jamie, let me say thank you and ask you to introduce yourself to everybody. Thanks so much, Jen. It's a delight to be with you. Uh, So as Jen said, my name is Jamie Dunlop. I am uh, married to Joan, been married for about 22 years. We have two teenagers and a middle schooler, live in Washington, D.C. We've been here for most of the last 25 years. In the last 15 years, I have been serving as a pastor at a church on Capitol Hill, just behind the U.S. Capitol building. Yes, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. I, As I read more about you and your location and your church, um, it's a few blocks from the United States Capitol. And you talk about in your book having members at your church who come from different sides of political issues, even, even our representatives in government on separate sides of the aisle. I would just love for you to paint a picture for us of what it is like to minister in that location and with that kind of body. Well, you mentioned the trend of disagreement in churches. And in in some ways, I feel like I pastor a church of professional disagreeers, uh, that uh, it's, it's a church of lots of people who work in politics, lots of people who disagree with each other for a living. Uh, people who are different in all kinds of different ways in terms of where they come from, personality. Uh, Obviously, there are political differences, uh, which at least in my town is much more than just are you blue or are you red? There's all kinds of shades in the middle. Uh, Differences of uh, education, differences of uh, opinions, even about non-political issues. And so I have certainly learned a lot over the years about what it looks like to disagree and love each other all at the same time. 
you mentioned the book. Uh, it's called Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, which I intend to be somewhat <laughs> tongue in cheek, but not entirely. Uh, but I, I feel very much like it's a book, not so much of me writing it to teach my church as much as having watched a very diverse congregation uh, work through, I think, some difficult issues in ways that in the end, I think, turned out to be faith-filled and loving. I've learned a lot. And so I think what you see in the book is not so much me teaching as much as what I've learned. Yeah, that is amazing. And I think I feel the tension here in a suburb of Denver, Colorado. I mean, I couldn't be almost more further, you know, far away from the epicenter, which is where you're located. So I can only imagine, Jamie, just the intensity of the last few years and what it's been like to pastor that flock. And as you said, and we're going to talk about this more as we go on, that you have felt like these conflicts are really evidences of faith, not failure. So I want to get there really quick, but before we do... Remind us of just a historical context, because I think we tend to think, wow, the world has never been so divided as it was in 2020 and 2021 and these years after. Things have never been this bad, but you give us good historical context in your book. So could you remind us of that? Yeah, I think probably the most significant historical context for us as Christians is just to think about the church and what it was like when when the church was birthed. You know, you don't get too many chapters into the book of Acts before you see conflict between the Aramaic-speaking Christians and the Greek-speaking Christians who all were part of that first church in Jerusalem. Uh, you And even there, that's a situation where the apostles apparently thought that that division was so significant that they called a meeting of every Christian on the planet to come together to talk about what to do. Uh, as we get on to the New Testament, of course, that division between Jew and Gentile is very significant. It's always struck me if I was planting a church in, say, first century Ephesus, the most natural thing to do would be to have a church for Jews in one part of the city, a church for Gentiles in the other part of the city. Mm. And yet it seems that God's plan was from the very beginning for these churches to be Jew-Gentile with all the disagreement and misunderstanding and uh, difficulty that would have brought because their unity, despite those natural fault lines, was testimony to the power of the gospel. And I think what you see in the New Testament is not a call for you know unity at all costs, which I think is often a quick road to theological liberalism and compromise, but it's gospel unity. And yet it is gospel unity. It's, uh, there's an assumption there in the New Testament that the gospel is powerful that Jesus is strong enough to hold us together, whether it's the rich or poor of the book of James or uh, the Hebrews and Hellenists of the book of Acts, the Jews and Gentiles of the Ephesians and Roman churches, uh, that Jesus is big enough. And when we can uh, prove that out, uh, we get joy and God gets glory. Yeah, that is so good. It almost feels too good to be true, Jamie. (laughs) But I, I believe you and I, I just putting myself in your shoes in that context and, and imagining the disunity and then the unity. Tell us why you see it as evidence of faith, not failure. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe it's best to say sometimes it is evidence of failure. So as mm. I think about my own church, we sin all the time and how we manage through disagreement. So I, I don't want to present my church or even the churches of the New Testament as they get it all done right all the time. I think about the the Corinthians obviously had all kinds of problems 
because they divided over issues they shouldn't have divided over. Yeah. And yet, you know, especially as I think about that period 2020 to 2022 in my own church where we disagreed over pandemic restrictions, we disagreed over how to respond to our government's restrictions, we disagreed over uh, how to respond to uh, obviously the, the politics that were going on at that time, which for my church were very personal. Um, we disagreed over the, you know, how we should respond to the ongoing conversation about race in our country. Uh, there were a lot of upset people in my church and there were a lot of people who were upset at me. And I fielded many conversations of people in my church who were very mad at me. And yet, uh, I could feel their faith because I could tell in those conversations, they were talking to me as a brother. Uh, and they were talking to me, assuming we wanted the same thing, which is for Jesus to be honored in what we did. And uh, I, I, I saw a church that largely stayed together. There were so many reasons why people could have just said, okay, I'm headed to this church because everybody agrees with me. Or I'm headed to this church because everybody thinks the same way about this issue. And by and large, people didn't, uh, which is why I see it not as evidence of failure, but of faith that if... Mm -hmm. If a church really is centered on Christ alone and not Christ and a shared uh, attitude toward the pandemic and Christ and shared politics and Christ, you know, and a shared model of parenting or whatever your division might be, if a church really is centered on Christ alone, then I think you're going to find you are going to disagree about almost everything else. And so the idea that you have disagreement in your church uh, shouldn't surprise us. It should just be, I think, something we expect if we're going to center a church on Jesus and Jesus alone. Mm. That is really good because I do think somehow, maybe it's a the discipleship we receive from culture, maybe it's our flesh, but I do feel like even in, in my own thoughts, an expectation for ease of unity and that we're going to agree, you know, if we agree on the gospel, then of course we're going to agree on all of these secondary and tertiary issues, but that's not been my experience. Right. And yet, yet I feel like it should be. And, and what I hear you saying is, no, let me remind you that if we're unified in Christ, we're probably going to disagree on everything else. And that's so refreshing, honestly, um, to just maybe shift our expectations. That's a really good correction, actually. Yeah. And I think sometimes, Jen, we are taught even by churches to think about church as a consumer. Like you yeah. you shop for a church like you shop for a car. So you're looking for a church that's going to have the options you want and it's not going to give you any trouble and it's going to make you look good. And when you are taught to look for a church that way, then of course you want a church which is easy. And of course you have very little tolerance for disagreement and difference at church because it wasn't supposed to be that way. Mm -hmm. And yet, if we look at the New Testament, uh, the church is not a place of consumerism, but it's a place of love. And that love is sacrificial. And that love is sacrificial in a joyous, wonderful way. I mean, that's mm -hmm. uh, that's how we see Jesus as we love each other. Uh, but that consumerism is just going to bite us hard when we begin to expect church to be easy because people who are different from you, if you're a Jewish Christian in the city of Rome in the first century, those Gentile Christians are not easy. Uh, those are difficult relationships, probably. I am sure. 
Now you've touched on a huge thing that could be a whole another book, another podcast altogether, but let's dive in a little bit deeper here. You say that we are taught to view church as a consumer, and I, I think that's really true. I feel that in my suburb where I'm located, you know, I'm definitely rooted in a population that by and large moved here for a specific lifestyle, you know, specific sports and schools and activities for their kids. You know, you don't, you don't end up here usually unless you have a goal to consume a specific way of living, right? And so that, you know, and I and I know I tend towards that. Let me pick a school that serves me. Let me pick a whatever other community that serves me, serves my family in the way that we like it. Um, this is clearly a massive blind spot in the church. So if the church is not meant to be a place where we go to get the things that we want, where we consume, what is the purpose of the church? I'd say the church is a place where we go to see Jesus, and he is so much better than, you know, checking all the boxes and getting all the stuff you want at church. And I think one of the main ways we see Jesus in the church is certainly through his word as we're taught who he is. We see him in the Old Testament and the New, uh, but it's also through the community of the church uh, that um, that as we see the faith of others, that strengthens our own faith. And I think in particular, as we see the faith of people who we disagree with and yet have Christ in common, that strengthens our faith in a special way. We see Jesus in a special way. And so the New Testament call is not like, you know, be the Marine Corps of church where we just do the really hard thing because it's the really hard thing. And that's what we're supposed to do. The, it, the New Testament calls, it's a call to joy, but it's just saying, hey, the joy of consumerism where you get everything you want isn't the real joy of heaven. The real joy of heaven is to find Jesus Christ at church and to see his glory and his power. And as I, I think I have a phrase of the church, the easy love rarely shows off gospel power. You're not going to see the real power of Jesus Christ if you just do the easy thing and go with people uh, at church who you always agree with. Yeah, I love that quote. I underlined that, highlighted that, dog-eared that easy love rarely shows off gospel power because... I, you know, we do, we naturally sort of slide towards or defer towards wanting it to be easy. And yet the way that our Lord loves us was not, is not, will not be easy. You know, he clearly endured death on the cross on our behalf because of love. That's gospel love. And so you're right. Easy love rarely shows off gospel powers. It's important for us to keep that central in our minds as we think about how to love our communities. Jamie, let me ask you this. Do you think that friendships that are hard fought lead to greater joy? Friendships that are, you know, where unity was a process and it was a battle and we had to rely on the spirit to bring us there. Do those friendships lead to greater joy? I think so. Uh, and I think so in two ways. One in a just kind of natural, not don't need to be a Christian kind of way, but also in a very distinctly Christian way. You know, even if you're not a Christian, if you've in, if you've invested in the relationship, it's not been easy. It's been, as you said, it's been a hard one relationship. I think there's something especially precious there just because it took so much work to get there. But I think as a as a Christian, there's there's another layer, which is very often the the relationships that are hard fought are there relationships where you really don't share much in common with someone other than Jesus Christ? Uh, so I've got friendships at church where we share lots in common. Uh, we have similar backgrounds, similar interests, 
those are wonderful friendships. Uh, they're good for me because those people kind of, they get me without having to ask. They can confront me. They can encourage me in very powerful ways. Uh, and yet, I think if I look at the New Testament, uh, that's not the whole church, yeah. right? Paul has those Im- that image of the church as the body with many different members, and there's going to be people there who don't naturally get me. I don't understand them innately. Uh, we do frustrate each other. And yet, uh, we share Christ in common, and mm-hmm. Christ is enough for a friendship, and if you think about it, you know, if, if you build a friendship where the thing you really love is, you know, you're both fans of the Broncos um, and you're Christians, right? What's your friendship going to be about? Well, it's going to be about a lot of football and a little bit of Jesus. And that friendship where you really don't share much in common other than Christ, it's it's going to push you in different ways. It's going to feel uncomfortable because you're having to lean into that new Christ-loving nature in a way you're not used to doing. But as you persevere in love and you build a real friendship, all you've got is Jesus. And as wonderful as the Nevin Broncos might be, Jesus is far better for building a friendship. Mm-hmm. Far more joy, far more glory for Christ in uh, in our perseverance in that kind of loving relationship. So yes, I agree with you. Um, there is something precious about a hard-won relationship, but especially when it's been hard-fought and difficult precisely because all you share in common is Jesus Christ. That is so good. It's so countercultural that these friendships are really precious and worth pursuing. I think, you know, often we, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I say, and deeper. I think, think, you know, when you get to Christ as the foundation, you're going a lot deeper than anything else you could build on. Right. I think it's possible that many of us, and maybe, you know, and this is obviously a huge generalization, but maybe the American church in general hasn't persevered to the point of tasting the sweetness of that friendship. You know, as I'm, as I'm hearing ourselves say this, I am thinking, is that, you know, is that really true? Is that really possible? Are those friendships even better? And yet I've, I have had those friendships, especially overseas where um, we have lived before and there was the only thing in common was Christ. And so I have tasted it and I know that that's true. And yet that is just not our default posture, especially here. I, I feel that we are, we're looking for ease. My flesh is looking for ease. And so this reminder, I think, is really valuable. Can you talk to us about the reputation of Christ? That's something that came up in the book and I think um, is also something maybe we don't ponder very often. But what do you mean by the reputation of Christ and what does the church have to do with that? Yeah, so most of the book is is just walking through the last chapters of the book of Romans and trying to grab the gospel tools that Paul is giving those Jew-Gentile churches in Rome and apply them to our own context. Uh, when you're loving people who are difficult to love, when you're loving people who drive you crazy, uh, we need special tools. And I think that's exactly what we get at the end of the book of Romans. And one of those tools is to recognize that uh the relationships you have at church say something true or false about Jesus Christ. Uh, And so when there's division at church that lies about Jesus, and if I care about his reputation, if I care about what people think about him, then I don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. I think about when Paul rebukes the Corinthian church, he does it in a very theological way. He says, like, some of you are going after Paul and some are going after Apollos. He says, is Christ divided? Which is so 
interesting because there's all kinds of ways he could rebuke them. But he goes for that theological angle of saying, hey, people, these petty disagreements you have, uh, they say something false about Christ. And we don't want that because we love him. We love his reputation. Uh, my, my own church, I think, had a bad reputation in the neighborhood uh, 30 years ago. Mm. I wasn't here yet. I arrived kind of as things began to get better. But mm. we were we were mocked, and I think quite rightly so, in the neighborhood. And you just think that that's a barrier to people coming to Christ. But even beyond the barrier to evangelism, it, it denigrates the one who is the most beautiful being imaginable. Uh, that he's our savior. We don't want him mocked. Uh, and that's very much where Paul goes in, in a little bit in Romans 12, especially Romans 14, uh, is he says, look, if, if you can't love despite these disagreements, then Christ is mocked and you're mocked as well. And that should very much motivate us uh, to get beyond what's easy to say uh, Christ is worth discomfort uh, because I want him to be shown for the the amazing savior he is. Yeah. Yeah, there is yeah, something, there is really, something powerful really powerful about being, about more, being concerned more concerned about the, concerned about the reputation, reputation of Christ, Christ than the reputation, than the reputation of myself. Of myself. Hmm. Wanting, Wanting to protect, to protect you, know, you know, and and put forth, put forth the, truth the truth about Jesus. About Jesus. And the great thing is of what, of what Go ahead. Go ahead. I say the great thing is the reputation of Christ can hold that weight and your yes. reputation and mine it can't. It's not. We're not built yes. to do that. We're not built to be the center. That's so good because we will ruin our reputations. Yes, of course. We are, we're sinners. We're fallible. Yeah. <laughs> our reputations are not pristine for good reason, and yet, uh, what do we? I love how you say that. What does? My, how does my behavior, my conduct, my friendships, my relationships? What does that say about Christ in me? Is it? Am I telling the truth about Christ in the way that I conduct myself and and these friendships? I think well, much, inevitably, yeah, finish that thought. Oh, I say uh, much of the book is just trying to help us recognize that uh, the church matters, not just because of what it accomplishes, but because of what it is. Yeah. And uh, sometimes we get frustrated with all that disagreement, with all those differences, because it keeps us from doing the things we want to do. We forget that there's a deeper meaning to church, which is it should show off the glory of Jesus. Uh, and so exactly what you said is right, that uh, we need to care about uh, how our actions, what our actions say about Jesus and, and, yeah. and do they point to a reputation which is true or false about him? Right. Which, you know, when we are disagreeing, then maybe we are accomplishing the task of the church insofar as we put Christ on display and tell the truth about him in our dis disagreements. Yeah, if we do so through faith. I mean, mm -hmm. we can we can really mess things up in disagreement, but disagreement's also a time when our faith is really put to the test. Yeah, that's good. So inevitably amongst disagreements, there's going to be, we are going to sin against each other. We're going to mistreat one another. And there's going to be a need for forgiveness within our local bodies, within our bigger, you know, global body of Christ as well. Can you talk to us about forgiveness? What genuine forgiveness looks like? No, I'm really struck in, in Luke six, that famous passage, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Yeah. And he talks about forgiving. Uh, that's really the next thing he goes to. 
And he gives this amazing picture of, uh, it's a famous phrase, turning the other cheek. And it, it, it strikes me how often our forgiveness fails to achieve that. So, you know, someone badmouths me at church and I give them the silent treatment or let the relationship get very icy. And I think I've forgiven them because I haven't badmouthed them back. Uh, forgiveness is inherently unfair. And very often because we've not, we've done something that's a little bit unfair, we feel like we've forgiven. But that's not the full forgiveness he describes there. Turning the other cheek says, okay, I'm going to give you the opposite of what you deserve. Uh, I think the phrase I use in the book is that forgiveness is not merely unfair, it's anti-fair. That uh, if, if you're forgiving me, you are actually taking on yourself the consequences of my sin, which in church is often relational consequences. You know, you're saying, look, your sin deserves for this friendship to be spoiled, but I'm going to bend over backwards to keep the friendship going. Or your sin deserves for an icy silence to settle over our relationship, but I'm going to pursue you with warmth and affection. Uh, that's the opposite of what you deserve. I think very often forgiveness doesn't lead to reconciliation, not because reconciliation is impossible, but because we've convinced ourselves we've forgiven and we haven't gone quite as radical as Jesus calls us to in that forgiveness. Yeah. Talk about forgiveness in our local bodies, because I think, you know, there's a forgiveness that is required maybe outside of our local bodies and a forgiveness that's required inside. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm overstating that. But you speak to reconciliation, and I'm thinking of unity in the body. So if we're in the same local body, then reconciliation really isn't an option. It's required. And yet there might be relationships outside the church where reconciliation is not possible for various reasons. But can you unpack that a little bit for us? Well, I'd say even inside the church, I think so. it's a fallen world. So sometimes reconciliation, sadly, is not possible. And, you know, there can be situations where trust, say, with church leaders is so destroyed, even if you're at fault, that you just, you got to go somewhere else if you're going to keep growing in Christ. So I think we need to have that realism there of this is life in a fallen world. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, unity means that generally we do need to pursue reconciliation. Yeah. And I think a, a church is an odd place because it's, it's small enough that we can get deeply hurt, but it's often big enough that we can just avoid people rather than dealing with the problems. And I think what, what Christ would call us to do is to forgive and to pursue reconciliation. If you think about reconciliation as a bridge, obviously it needs to be built from both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, but my responsibility is to build my side of the bridge, to do the hard work of forgiving, to make sure I really have turned the other cheek that I have willingly and joyfully embrace the consequences of the other person's sin cost us mm. and pray that both sides of the bridge are built. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the nuance in your answer because what I hear you saying is sometimes reconciliation is not possible, but that should be extremely rare. And I think we've maybe pursued that more as a norm. You know, again, I'm speaking in generalizations, but we sort of like, yeah, yeah, it's just hard. You got to, you know, you got to move on. <laughs> but you're pressing us to say no. Reconciliation more often than not, you know, in that should be what we really see in the majority of situations. And so you're not letting us off the hook. And yet you're also saying sometimes 
that is required. And so, yeah, thanks for that nuance there. That is really helpful. Um, one more thing I want to ask you about before you send us off with some gospel hope, which is how I love to end every episode. But this feels really um, current, really useful right now. Help us understand how to triage issues of Christian freedom. So what I mean by that is we're not always going to agree on things. You said, you know, we're going to agree in Christ and maybe disagree on everything else. (laughs) How do we know uh, when issues are disputable or not? How do we know when we, we should, you know, yeah, I don't need to say anymore. How do we triage Jamie? That's a hard thing to do. I mean, it requires a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment. there are issues that should split churches. You know, if uh, if there are people who are advocating a works righteousness, that's not the gospel, right? And then you are not to have unity with them, at least not in that gospel sense. Uh, and so I think the first question is, is this a gospel issue? Um, I think a second issue is, is this issue the kind of issue where we can disagree and still be in the same church? And, you know, in Romans 14, it's a, it's a question of can Christians eat meat? And there's debates over exactly what the problem was seen with meat. Is it that they were trying to keep kosher? Is that it was sacrificed to idols? Uh, but Paul is essentially saying, look, I have an opinion about this issue and you Christians are right and you Christians are wrong, but... I'm not going to try to get everybody to agree on this issue. What I'm going to tell you to do is to love each other despite this disagreement. Uh, there are other issues where we say, okay, we're all Christians, uh, and yet this is a big enough issue. We probably can't be part of the same church. I think historic issues over baptism would come to mind where we say, you know, the Baptists and Presbyterians, we're all going to be together in heaven someday. Uh, but you got to figure out how you're going to obey Jesus' command. And if we disagree over that, this is pretty basic. We're going to end up in two different churches and probably can show off gospel unity between churches in a way that honors mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. So I think the main question you have to, you know, first, is it a gospel issue? Second, even if it's not a gospel issue, is it a significant enough issue that uh, we necessarily need to be in two different churches? I think the third issue is more a personal issue, which is, can I continue to grow in Christ despite the presence of this difference or disagreement. And sometimes I just need to be honest and humble and say, you know what, if I was a more mature Christian, I could I could stay, but I don't think I can. And that's you got to be really careful there because you can you can abuse that and end up running for the comfort of similarity and fleeing uh, what is going to strengthen your faith in the differences uh, that are not gospel differences. But sometimes we need to recognize that. And that's a conversation you need to have with people you trust, probably the leaders of your church, uh, just to say, is this difference the kind of difference where we can still be in the church together? And there's not like, you know, a, a rote, here are the 15 questions to ask and you're gonna pop out with the answer. I think very often though, Though it's discomfort, though it's uncomfortable and difficult, the answer is, gosh, you know what? I think we can be in the same church despite this disagreement. And now the focus turns from uh, wondering, should I leave to wondering, how do I love? Yeah, no, that is that is really helpful, Jamie. And I hope that that 
many hear your words and read the book. Love the ones who make you crazy. And uh, yeah, I read it over this past weekend. I felt like you wrote it directly to me. It felt very personal and very convicting, um, but but also actually quite encouraging that, no, this isn't too good to be true. Christ in me is the hope of glory, and he will help me seek unity even in the most difficult of circumstances. So I will link the book in the show notes. Um, I'll make sure to link where people can keep up with you as well. But would you close us out with some gospel hope? I, I would imagine some listeners are feeling like, you know, I am fallible. I am so sinful. Can I really pull this off? Can I really? Or they might be thinking, those other people on people in my church. <laughs> That's right. Pull this Much more realistic. So, yes. Send us out, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the words I have are from Romans 15. Uh, Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. These are words written to Jews and Gentiles together in the Roman churches. Uh, it's not easy. That's why he prays to the God of endurance and encouragement. Uh, and yet, uh, if they love, what they show is that being in accord with Christ Jesus is all they need to live together in harmony. And as they do that, it says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is glorified as we speak with one voice. And I think what, what we see there is that God is more glorified and we get more joy because of our love across differences than if we'd never have any differences in the first place. And sometimes the church we want for, and dream about the easy church where we all understand each other, we never disagree, is a church that isn't going to prove out the power of the gospel. And as a result, it's a church where it's a church of mediocre joy. And so though these things are challenging, though these things stretch our faith, uh, this is this is where the gospel is put to the test, and this is where Jesus gets glory and we get joy. That's a powerful closing word. Thank you, Jamie Dunlop, for being with us today. So grateful for your words. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Jen. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.